I've been kind of dreading and anticipating this series for the better part of the last six, seven months, because on the one hand, um, I'm a part of a team that helps plan and decide the kinds of stuff that we talk about on Sundays at all of our campuses. And, and so last fall, when we gathered to plan out this year and begin to think and pray and strategize um, the, the stuff that we were gonna be talking about, we really had this sense that this conversation was one that we could not ignore. And so I've been kind of looking forward to it for that reason. On the other hand, um, because of my personality, uh, I'm kind of Emmett from the Lego movie where everything is awesome. That's the way I wake up every day. Uh, it's not put on. That's genuinely how I feel. I'm stoked about life every single day. And so for me and my personality, talking about or just thinking about talking about anxiety and depression or mental health for a few weeks in a row not only feels overwhelming, it's kind of depressing. So I'm like, man, do we really want to talk about this? And because I'm naturally sort of drawn to beauty and joy and hope and life. But at the same time, I know that life isn't all sunshine and rainbows, or at least mine hasn't been. I don't know what yours has been like. And so I know that this conversation is going to be worth it. And, and so what I want to kind of preface by saying and sort of introduce to you this morning and, and maybe sort of plant this seed in your heart is that the next few weeks may be a little bit heavier um, than usual because we're going to be diving into this conversation full on. Now, I confess up front that this conversation is way, way bigger, I know that, than we have time or space for in just a handful of like sermons or talks that we're going to do here on Sunday morning. It's also way bigger than me. Because at the end of the day, I'm not an expert in anything, really, except my own journey and my own human experience. And so chances are, if you're somebody who has struggled with this or been down this road, or you know someone, or you're related to somebody, or you love somebody who has mental health issues or struggles with anxiety or depression, um, there's probably going to be a time where I fall short of addressing the issue that you felt like maybe you need addressed or, or answering the question that you really need answered. But, but I want you to know right up front that even though I'm inadequate, 100%, that the scriptures are not, and that God certainly isn't. And, and so our goal in this series is to really take something that's kind of been sort of taboo or off limits to talk about in church and drag it out into the light. And so that every single person who steps through our doors, no matter what they're dealing with, no matter what they're battling, no matter what they're facing, that they would know that nobody fights or stands alone. And so what I'm really hoping to do is to start a conversation between you and God that's gonna carry over to your whole life and spill over into the people around you. And so I wanna begin here just by saying that if you are in that place, if you are someone that this conversation is very personal for, where you're battling anxiety or depression, or you have days where you struggle to find even a single reason to live, I want you to know that you are not alone. And I want to ask you to maybe summon all the energy or courage that you have to take this journey with us the next few weeks. If you're not somebody who is depressed or you've never struggled with that, you don't have at least maybe you think you don't have mental health issues. Um, actually, the studies show, especially for, um, especially for men in our culture, that, that uh, mental health issues actually express themselves 
um, through alcoholism and, and rage and fighting and violence way more because it's just not acceptable as acceptable for men to seek help for their mental health issues. Um, but if you're somebody who is, doesn't struggle with this, if you're, it, I, I wanna encourage you to stick around too because I think there's some good stuff in here um, that's gonna be helpful to you um, because chances are, you know somebody, you love somebody, you work with someone, you're raising someone, somebody raised you, you're related to somebody, you live next to somebody who is struggling with mental health issues. And, and I wanna just invite you to lean into this conversation. So 10 years ago, there were uh, an organization that was called uh, Invisible Children. It was founded uh, by a guy named Jason Russell and they put out a video uh, and that video was about the abuse and kidnapping and killing of children in the country of Uganda. And, and they started the video to kick off this campaign and the campaign was called Coney 2012. Does anybody remember Coney 2012? A few of us, okay. Some of us are either weren't on the internet or were too young to remember Coney 2012. Um, and and it was, so the, this video was a 30 minute documentary and it was one of the very first sort of viral campaigns that hit the internet. And, and honestly, they, they caught lightning in a bottle because it blew up. It was viewed over a million times within just the first 12 hours it was posted. It was shared a gazillion times. I mean, it just became this massive, this massive thing. It was everywhere. So if you didn't see it, I don't know where you were, okay? Um, but then the internet did what the internet does. Okay, so when something gets a lot of attention like that, with all that attention came this massive backlash and all these people and all this scrutiny and all this hate and people saying you're lying and you're not telling the truth and this isn't real. And, and so within a few weeks, the Invisible Children's founder, this guy, Jason Russell, I mentioned a second ago, he had a complete and total breakdown to the point where one day um, he lived in San Diego. One day he just for no reason at all other than he was just melting down. He stripped off his clothes and ran out into the street naked and was screaming obscenities at people and yelling at people and screaming at cars and pounding on cars and slamming into stuff and ended up being hospitalized in a mental, house, in a mental health facility um, for over two months before he got out and just began his road to dealing with whatever it was that was going on with him. Now, most of the time when situations like that happen to somebody that we don't know and it's just on the news or it's on the internet or whatever, like we're usually too far away to like, oh man, that's a bummer. Or like, well, that's kind of weird. I want, you know, it's just more of a train wreck. It's just kind of interesting. I mean, it's sad, but they usually just become the latest meme or punchline on social media. The problem is, is it's still somewhat confusing when we think about it, right? Because we, we can't help but think like, how did that happen? Like what went wrong? How did they get to that point? What was going on with them to make you strip your clothes off and run into the street and scream at people? Now, obviously it, it feels different and lands a little differently when it's closer to home, right? When it's somebody that, 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 you know, that you know, that you may not have known somebody who did that or that stripped naked and ran the streets, but most of us have witnessed someone that we know and care about break down or have a breakdown on a smaller scale, whether it was they just suddenly out of the blue, what it was out of the blue for you and everybody else, but not for them, but they just suddenly out of the blue just blew up their family and blew up their life and took off, right? Or, or somebody that, that you weren't even aware that they really drank that much, but all of a sudden they're hospitalized for a drinking problem and they're in a program and you're just like, whoa, what was going on? I don't even, I thought like, I didn't even know, right? Or, or somebody that you know that you thought they were fine and then all of a sudden they're admitted into some sort of mental health facility. 
See, it's these moments that where there's this external evidence of all of the internal turmoil and battle that's going on. And, and we can't see it, but there's been something sort of eating away at them on the inside until the, the moment that their very private battle becomes a very public breakdown. And then we're like, oh my gosh, we had no idea, right? Because they're demonstrating on the outside the kind of unrelenting sort of pressure and pain that they've been experiencing on the inside. It's just eventually they reach a breaking point in their ability to sort of hold it all in and keep it all contained and just continue to sort of push through and live their life. They, they lose that ability and then it becomes this thing. I mean, oftentimes we don't actually realize how depressed somebody is until they have a breakdown. And sometimes we don't even realize how depressed we are until we have a breakdown. Because the truth is we're all pretty good at kind of hiding our darkest and most manic moments from people. And sometimes we're pretty good at hiding them even from ourselves. In fact, most of the people who suffer from mental health issues, who struggle with depression, they're really good at creating a front that looks really good. And they do it to survive, right? Because part of the thing for them is is that they're convinced that we're convinced that if people knew what was really happening with us, if they knew our, our, our real struggles, if they knew what we're really thinking, that, they'd re, that we, they would reject us. And, and as much as I'd love to be able to stand up here and try to convince you that that's not true, well, the reality is sometimes it is true. It's self-fulfilling. And, and so we do what we do. We do whatever we have to do to sort of push it all to the side so that we can just continue to function and live our life and take care of our responsibilities and not draw attention to ourselves and really not try to inconvenience anybody. All the while, we're quietly just kind of dying on the inside. And then for me, maybe most disturbingly or tragically, it is that it's in spaces like this, in the arena of faith and church, that it seems to happen just as frequently, where people don't feel permission to be honest about their struggles. And one of the interesting things for me, having grown up in church and, uh, and then stepped into ministry and spent most of my life in settings like this is that the language that we use in church sometimes is almost magical, right? Where, where no matter what somebody's going through, what we say to them is like, well, all you need to do is just pray more or read the Bible more or trust God more. Or you know what your problem is? You don't have enough faith. And not only are those things not helpful, most of the time they're very, very harmful and destructive. Now, the truth is, if we're honest, it's not just other people that think those kinds of warped things. It's us too. I mean, if you've been a follower of Jesus, you'd have to admit you've probably felt or thought at least at one point, right? Like if I could just get this thing right, I wouldn't be so anxious or discouraged as I am now, right? If I could just get my relationship with Jesus right, I wouldn't be so depressed or so down. I would be able to get on top of this thing. It's strange, but we act as if the people in the scriptures were somehow immune to these kinds of struggles, but they weren't at all. In fact, it was just the opposite. The scriptures are full of stories of loneliness and despair and anxiety and depression. In fact, one of the things that you notice over and over and over again when you begin to read the scriptures of the common characteristics of people that God uses in beautiful ways is that they all have these incredibly high moments of faith and heroism but they also have these incredibly low moments of darkness and despair. And sometimes they happen right, one right after the other. In fact, later in this series, we're gonna read a couple of those stories. 
And it's all over the place. The truth is like, you're gonna find it all over, but especially in right in the middle of the scriptures, there's a book called Psalms. It's a collection of poems and songs. And so there's a lot in there about this kind of stuff. And I think there's some sort of unwritten religious rule that anytime you talk about something emotional or spiritually heavy at church, you're obligated to read from the Psalms. And I'm not big on following rules, but I do feel compelled to kind of go there this morning. And so uh, we're going to be reading a Psalm, Psalm 88. Before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of background. As I said a second ago, the Psalms were songs that were written by different people. And if you've ever grown up in church or you've ever read the Bible or you've ever read a Psalm, there's a part of the Psalm that we always skip. And it's the preface. It's the instructions. Like it gives you this number of the Psalm number. And then it tells you like, who wrote it and what they what was going on in their life at the time or who they wrote it to or how it's supposed to go or there's instructions to the choir director or whatever. And we just kind of gloss over that stuff and start reading. Um, but I, I wanted to actually um, pause for a moment and read that before we read the actual Psalm because I think it sets the stage really well for us. And so in Psalm 88, it says this, it says, for the choir director. So this was a song that was written for the choir director to be able to lead a choir so people could sing it. And the song, he's like, if you want to know how this goes, it's to be sung to the tune, the suffering of affliction, which kind of makes me laugh, right? Okay, because they're talking about gathering for church, a choir going to sing a song to worship. And he's like, you guys know that one, the gather, you know, the, 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 the suffering of affliction. Yeah, sing that one. That's how it goes. It goes to that tune. It was like their graves into gardens, only it was a lot more graves than it was gardens. And so he's like, this is the tune. This is how it goes. And it says it was a psalm of He-Man the Ezraite. Now, I'm almost certain that is not how you pronounce his name, but I intentionally did not go look at how you pronounce his name because I like He-Man way better. So we, we're gonna know him as He-Man. So a psalm of He-Man the Ezraite. And this is what He-Man wrote in verse one. We're actually gonna read his entire song and it is a long and it is a doozy so buckle up all right it says oh lord god of my salvation i cry out to you by day i come to you at night now hear my prayer listen to my cry for my life is full of troubles and death draws near I am as good as dead, like a strong man with no strength left. They have left me among the dead and I lie like a corpse in a grave. I am forgotten. Can you guys just feel it? You wanna just worship right now? Just He's like, it's about to pick up guys. All right, we're getting to the hook. All right, here we go. Verse six, you have thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depths. Your anger weighs me down. With wave after wave, you have engulfed me. You have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I am in a trap with no way of escape. My eyes are blinded by my tears. Each day I beg for your help, O Lord. I lift my hands to you for mercy. Are your wonderful deeds of any use to the dead? Do the dead rise up and praise you? Can those in the grave declare your unfailing love? Can they proclaim your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Can the darkness speak of your wonderful deeds? Can anyone in the land of forgetfulness talk about your righteousness? 
Oh Lord, I cry out to you and I will keep on pleading day by day. Oh Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? I have been sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate before your terrors. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. They have engulfed me completely. And here is the great ending to this song. You have taken away my companions and my loved ones. Darkness is my closest friend. I mean, yeah. So it's not unusual for any of the Psalms to have an element or a major theme in them to be despair and sadness and anguish and struggle with God. And God, do you see me? And do you care? And where are you? It's not, that's not unique. What is unique about this is that normally in the Psalms, there's all of that stuff, but by the end, it kind of gives way to light and hope, but not this one. Right to the very end, it, it, darkness is my closest, some translations say my only friend. Not exactly what you'd expect from a guy named He-Man, especially when you imagine, see, I told you, we need to call him He-Man. Yet, as depressing and as tormented as this whole song is, it is included in the word of God. See, this is something that God wanted us to read and to chew on and to sit with. It it was a song that they sung when they gathered at the temple, which, I mean, can you imagine? Like, can you imagine gathering for church and we're singing a song that dark we need to be like, hey, Charlie wrote this song. And it's just like, darkness is my closest friend. God, you suck. Where are you? And it's just like, whoa, somebody check on Charlie, right? But that's what was going on. They gathered around and they're just like singing this song. And, and why, would, why would they make space for that? Well, I, I think partly to make it okay to not be okay, to create space for people to explore the tough and brutal parts of life, to surface and confess and process even the darkest, most painful moments with other people and together find a way forward. When I was a kid growing up in church, there was this weird mixture in church of always having to kind of put on a smile and sort of hide your dark and sad and hopeless, hurtful thoughts. Like there was that. But, but there was also this piece where it just constantly felt like the pastor was trying to do his best to sort of convince you how bad your life was so that you would try Jesus. And so it was like you were supposed to feel desperate without actually feeling or showing that you were desperate. It was just so confusing to me. But for these people and the people of Israel, it was different for them. Yeah, the tabernacle was where you went to celebrate, but it was also where you went where you went to mourn. It, it was where you went to dream for the future and the promise of God and what he has for you, but it was also where you went when you couldn't find a reason to live. We actually don't know a lot about this guy, He-Man. He's kind of an obscure character in the Old Testament, but we do know a few things about him. We know from the scriptures that he actually was a pretty awesome, incredible leader, that King David chose him as one of his closest advisors, that he loved God and he was known for his wisdom and his leadership, that he was not only a gifted musician and songwriter, but when the temple, when David's son Solomon became king and he built the temple, that 
that He-Man was one of the three people in the entire nation of all the millions of people that, that they actually chose to come and serve in the temple to write the music and to create the worship and the experiences people gathered for the temple. But we also know that depression wasn't just something that was sort of a passing thing in his life. It was something that he seemed to battle most of his life with. In fact, in the the song, he says that I've been sick from my youth. He wasn't physically sick. He was talking about how he had struggled from the time that he was an adolescent all the way through his adult life with just being depressed and mental health stuff. See, here's what I want you to see because of his example. That emptiness, the, the emptiness that we sometimes sense isn't proof that God is absent. Like so often when we're in that place of just, we, we can't feel and he's crying out to God, where are you? Don't you care what's going on? But, but God was not absent at all. God was fully present. See, the only thing that depression and anxiety are proof of in your life is that you're human. Not that God's mad at you or God's abandoned you. I think part of what makes this conversation so challenging is that depression doesn't look the same for everybody. And some people, well, some people eat too much. That's actually not part of it. I was just making a statement about how some people eat too much. But some people also stop eating altogether. Some people sleep constantly. Some people have insomnia. Some people can't get out of bed. Some people push themselves to a manic pace with constant activity and noise and obsession and so, like, what, what are we even talking about? Like, how do we even get our arms around this? Well, I think part of it is, like, we often think of depression as just deep and profound sadness or despair. And, and it's true that, that that may accompany it. That may be what it looks like for some people. But I think it may start that way. But many times, it's not so much sadness as much as it just is a numbness of life that is resulting from long-term joylessness and hopelessness in life. Because the truth is we all have depressing moments and feelings. We all have moments of sadness and despair and hopelessness and grief. But it's getting stuck in them is the problem, which is kind of obvious, right? No, none of us want to get stuck there. And so that's partly why we do our best to kind of avoid or deny those experiences. But I want you to listen to one of the most famous portions of scripture that's found in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter three. Even if you're not a church person or a Bible person, you've probably heard these words somewhere. In Ecclesiastes three, verse one, it begins this way. It says, for everything, there is a season, a time, for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter the stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to turn away. There's a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Man, we, we love how poetic those verses are, but when Solomon wrote them, he wasn't trying to write poetry. It wasn't like, man, they need to make a really cool song from these words like in the 1950s or 60s or whenever they read that song. Okay, thank you. It's before I was born, all right? So. 
No, he wasn't, he wasn't writing poetry. He was making a very practical observation about life. He, he was saying that life is gonna be full of high moments, but it's also gonna be full of really low moments, that, that there's gonna be wins and losses, there's gonna be beauty and tragedy, and, and that there is a time for all of it and that we should make time for all of it in our lives. But the problem is if you're like me, like a lot of that stuff, you're just like, man, I'm too busy for some of that stuff. I ain't nobody got time for that. Like, I mean, a time to die and tear down and cry and grieve and scatter and walk away and desperately search and throw away and sit in silence and hate and war. Like, no thanks, God, I'm good. All full here. Besides, like you, I don't wanna get bogged down and trapped in all that stuff. I wanna rise above it and live above it. But therein lies this really strange truth in juxtaposition about life, that the more space and time that we allow in our lives to experience and process the hardest parts of our story and the hardest parts of our life, the less likely we are to get trapped in those places. It's only when we actually try to avoid them and stuff them that often causes us to get stuck in them. Because nobody makes it through life unscathed. Life will call your number, every single one of us. If it hasn't called your number yet, just wait, it's coming. But to deny or avoid may work in the short term, but it's just never ends well. It just builds up and builds up and builds up until it boils over and we have a breakdown. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter five, verse three. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they are the ones who will be comforted. See, we often think that by avoiding, you know, that we can avoid the feelings, you know, we can escape them if we just sort of like pretend or push them away. But according to Jesus, according to the scriptures and according to psychology and all the studies that have ever been done, the more we try to suppress an emotion, the more we try to suppress something in our life, the stronger it gets. And so instead of feeling comforted in those moments, we just start feeling crazy because there's just all this noise in our soul. I, um, we titled this series, Defeating Depression, and I didn't pick that title um, because you might defeat it. You may. There certainly aren't any quick fixes or magic bullets. There's no spiritual formula or five steps to recovery. I, um, but you might defeat depression is probably not a good title either. There's probably not a lot of people that would come to hear that. Like, oh, you, you might make it through. I don't know. I, uh, I, I read this a couple months ago and it struck me and just rang so true that truth, that, that anxiety and depression are a lot like heart disease. There isn't one thing that causes it. It's a mix of things, right? It's genetics and it's emotional wiring and stress levels and your lifestyle and your habits. And you can't catch it from somebody. You can't just be like, oh, I got near that guy and he gave me his heart disease, right? You're not just like, oh, I got near her and she gave me her depression. That doesn't happen, right? A heart attack or heart failure may happen suddenly, but nobody has like rapid onset heart disease. It's something that develops slowly and gradually over time. And then one day without you even noticing it, you cross an invisible threshold and now you have it. And once you got it, you're gonna to have to deal with it for the rest of your life. Yesterday, you were normal. You didn't know you weren't normal, but you thought you were normal. But today, there's a new normal. Today, you're in a battle for the rest of your life, for your life. 
You have to actually learn how to get good at having heart disease, meaning you might not be able to ever defeat it and stomp it out and get your heart to go back to the way it was before you had it, but you can actually keep it from defeating you. And I think all of that is true in this conversation. See, God may do something supernatural and heal you. He can, just like he could heal your heart of heart disease. He could heal your mind and your soul of depression, but he, he may not. You may defeat your anxiety or depression, but you might not. But here's the good news. You might not be able to defeat depression, but you can keep depression from defeating you. You can actually learn how to get good at being somebody with mental health issues, with anxiety, with depression. In order to prevent a heart attack, you have to address not just one, but many of the underlying issues. And I think it's the same thing with our soul. It's the same thing with your heart and your mental health. Don't wait for the breakdown to begin addressing that stuff. Now, obviously, it's enormously complex because depression can be biological and mental and emotional and relational, environmental and habitual and spiritual and situational. There's all these components that go into it. And the chances are you're going to have to, if you're struggling in this area, you're going to have to address more than one of those areas. Which brings us back to Jesus. Because in John chapter 10, verse 10, he famously said that the reason he came was to bring us life and life to the full, to show us how to live life to the full, how to truly be fully alive. See, I think that's interesting because the opposite of depression isn't joy or happiness, it's vitality, it's being full of life, it's life to the full. And, and so there's a, a big part of this conversation where battling this stuff is about learning the art of living well in every arena of your life. It's about emotional, physical, relational, spiritual, and yes, mental health and vitality. And that's exactly what Jesus came to show us. See, the process of God mending your soul, it takes time. And sometimes it takes a good counselor. And sometimes it may take a good program. And sometimes it may take some medication. Because you are an integrated being. You're not just a body. You're not just a soul. You're not just a spirit. You're all of those things. And you got to address all of them together. Could God do anything? Of course he can't. But just try somebody going up to somebody with kidney failure and going, dude, if you just would pull yourself together and snap out of it and tell that kidney of yours to stop being a failure, don't accept failure, right? That, I mean, that's so silly. But that's what we do with people who are injured in a way that we can't see. What I can tell you in all of this is that peace and hope they aren't things that you, that you achieve one time and then you have them for the rest of your life. They are battles that you have to step into every single day. Strangely enough, that fight begins in a very unlikely place. It begins with reflection. It begins with just 
looking at what's really going on inside of you. It begins with you being honest with you, with you being honest with the people who are close to you, with you taking the risk of letting them see the brokenness and the pain and that inner struggle. It takes you being honest with God. Because God's not gonna force himself on you. He will only help you fix and address what you're willing to face and admit. In Psalm 139, verse 23, King David said this. He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. We always spiritualize things. So this had to be something, this was about something else, but that's not what he wrote. He was going, God, help me look at the messiest parts of my life and of my soul. Help me look at where I'm acting out in big ways and small ways and help me kind of get below the surface to see what's going on, to see what's underneath it. All the stuff that I'm trying to avoid feeling or facing, that's the stuff I wanna deal with, God. And that's what I love about what He-Man wrote is that he honored his story. He didn't suppress it. He didn't sanitize it. He just put it out there. He put it out there for God, but also remember he was writing a song for everybody to come to sing. And he didn't hold back. He was like, I'm writing it all in. And and so all this month, towards the end of each uh, of these messages, we're gonna have these little prompts, these questions. And so I'm gonna, I uh, invite you to take a picture of the next screen that's gonna come up in just a second. And it's just a couple of questions that for you to sit down, maybe just in the quietness between you and God or, or maybe between you and your spouse or you and a couple of people, if you're in a small group here, that you guys would sit down together and begin to talk about this stuff. But at the very least that you carve out a little bit of time and begin to think about it. And so here, here are the questions to take home for you today. What emotions do you avoid because you see them as uncomfortable unacceptable, or inappropriate. Identify them. And then what do you do to keep yourself from having to feel those things? And that's it. We're not gonna try to solve it for you. We want you to pull on that string. We want you to have those conversations. We want you to begin to bring that into the light with God. And and so why would you do this? Why would you take the time to, to, to explore this in your own soul? Well, because your story is sacred and so you need to honor it. You're not too messy or broken for God or for us. David knew his own seasons of depression and despair and he made this observation about his experience in Psalm 34, verse 18. He says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he rescues those whose spirits have been crushed. What an incredibly beautiful promise from God. Now, if you know this verse, it's usually only talked about in the context of grief and tragedy. But, but I, I think it, it applies every bit to this conversation we're having today as it does when, some, some, when someone's struck by tragedy. And so I, I think it could read that God is close to the anxious and the depressed, that he comes to the aid of the weary and the despairing. See, when you're, when you're broken to pieces and all the color and the beauty has been drained from your life, when the breath has been knocked out of you and you can't seem to catch your breath and you feel like you're suffocating, when life has sucked the life out of your soul, God is close. 
And, and the implication that David's writing is that God is never closer to us than he is in those moments. That the moment where it seems that he is most absent is the moment where he is most present. One of the things I will be doing over the next few weeks is sharing part of our personal journey because this conversation hits very close to home for us. We have each had our own issues with depression. Mine was short-lived, um, but my wife's has been a huge chunk of her adult life. And um, there's not a doubt in my mind that medication saved her life. That there's people that we love and we care about that took their own lives. That there were times where that was a real possibility for her. And one of the incredible things is that she has spent her journey through that, honoring that story and sharing that story and talking about that story. And it hasn't come without its moments. Because when you're a pastor and you have a wife who's got a very public presence online and is talking about, well, is writing about the kinds of things that He-Man wrote about. In our culture today, there's lots of people that are like, hey, she shouldn't be doing that. Why is she doing that? That's not the answer. What they didn't know is that for every comment of disapproval, let's call it, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people behind the scene that were going, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one. What you said gave me hope. I thought God was mad at me. I didn't know that I could be a Christian. I just thought it wasn't working. Don't suppress or sanitize your story. Honor it. If you're here and you're struggling, know that you're not alone, that God is with you and so are we. But it does take you letting God in and letting people close to you. We do want to pray for you and come alongside of you, but we also want to help you find and connect with the resources that you need to get the scaffolding around your life to begin to move towards health and vitality and life. Because God is near and he is here. You can let him in. Let's pray together.